This is an ABC podcast. This scheme is life-changing. There is good things this NDIS is doing. It's doing wonderful things. But let's also tell it as it really is. We've seen thousands of participants who have been treated poorly, who've had their schemes, funds arbitrarily cut. On the other hand, we will see an increase in the NDIS projected costs of $8.8 billion across the next four years. But as part of our reform, as we announced before the election, we want to do a root and branch review of the scheme. The NDIS, or National Disability Insurance Scheme, was meant to transform the lives of all Australians with a disability. And there is no doubt some lives have been transformed. Individuals now have access to services they didn't have before. And equally important, they have control and agency over those services. But this is not the case for all people with a disability. Many people have found the NDIS difficult to access or that their packages and services are inadequate or of a poor quality. And from the government's point of view, there is the cost blowout. Hello, I'm Annabelle Quince. In this revision, the story of the NDIS. What we've got right, what we've got wrong and how we might fix it. Before the introduction of the NDIS, disability funding was controlled by the states who tended to fund service providers, not people. Therefore, the services were controlled by these service providers and didn't always meet the needs or the demands of people with disabilities and their families. They were funded under legislation called the Disability Services Act, which was federal legislation 1986. Each state set up their own disability services legislation and they received money which they then dispersed to community organisations. Those community organisations offered a range of services, group homes, supported employment options, advocacy services and community access services and some personal support sorts of services. I'm Associate Professor Lorna Hallahan, a member of the Social Work Innovation Research Living Space Research Centre at Flinders University. The model was what we call block funding, and so those agencies that received the funding would then set about operating those services under a set of disability services standards and they control who came into the service, how many people they served, the nature of the service. And so there was a blockage for people who needed services but couldn't gain access to those services because they were at capacity for whatever reason. That refers to the unmet need, and unmet need varied around the country depending on the sorts of populations that we had, the needs of various groups of people that might be more intense in one part of the country, for example, remote Aboriginal communities, and also the capacity of those block-funded services to deliver. And so there was always pressure for people trying to get into and gain access to those services. What we saw and what the Productivity Commission really highlighted was that there was a significant underfunding of those services before the NDIS came into being and there was significant unmet need. Dr Angela Jackson, Lead Economist at Impact Economics and Policy. 
And then there was really big differences in terms of what services you might receive based on how and when you acquired a disability. So if you acquired a disability, for example, in a road accident, you might end up getting very good support and coverage. But if you acquired a disability because you fell off a ladder at home, you may not have received the same level of support and care. The other thing the Productivity Commission really found was there was an underinvestment in terms of the services that would lead to a long-term reduction in costs. So those early intervention services, particularly for children, that we know that can really improve outcomes, there was a significant underinvestment in those as well. A lot of people with disability and their families and the service providers individually and through their peak bodies were saying, we're getting all of this pressure from this unmet demand. We need something different here. That also caught up a longer, kind of deeper conversation about maybe these sorts of services are not the sorts of services that we want. So at one level, there's a question about unmet demand and another level is, are these really what people need? And those two voices came together from the disability community and that was heard by the Labor Party in opposition and it was picked up pretty quickly with the election of the Rudd government. And we saw certainly coming out of the 2020 summit, and you might remember that Kevin Rudd instituted at the the start of his government in 2008. And out of that, there was a recommendation around a national disability insurance scheme. And that really gave, I think, way to the advocates across the sector and a ground swell of support for greater investment in services and in terms of an NDIS. Now, The government then had to decide what to do with it in terms of the spending and and in terms of, well, how would we actually deliver this scheme? And so they then proceeded to ask the Productivity Commission to have a look at disability services and what a national disability insurance scheme might look like and how you might fund it. The federal government has released a major report into disability care and support, recommending the setting up of a national disability insurance scheme. The final Productivity Commission report says the universal scheme should be gradually phased in over seven years and that it's preferable the Commonwealth take full financial responsibility for it. There was a a push to say let's have a look at an insurance model. When you go from block funding to an insurance model, you say that people get the necessary funding at the point of need. They don't have something happen and then have to wait for five years to get services which they need instantly and the funding would then be directed through individuals rather than services and people could go and purchase their services. And there was fairly strong evidence coming out of some of the insurance schemes around catastrophic injury that showed that when people had access to funds at the point at which they needed it, they had better life outcomes. And so the Productivity Commission came up with a proposal around this kind of insurance model and finalised the model with the release of a lifetime care and support report, which was then adopted by the Gillard government. One of the things around the scheme that we had before was there was a lot of unmet need. There was a lot of inequity about who got services and when and how. And so what they looked at was this idea of, I guess, reasonable needs and support. So what was reasonable and not to necessarily dictate a list of supports, but to really see disability in terms of 
putting the person with a disability in control of the type of life they wanted to lead and what were reasonable supports that they should be provided to live that life. So it was a a very different conceptualisation of how we provide disability supports and at the heart of the NDIS really in its design and in what advocates were calling for was that people with a disability should have more choice and control over the lives that they lead, that it shouldn't be simply, you know, getting the very basic services and sometimes not even getting those basic services, but that people with a disability should be able to lead fulfilled lives like the rest of the community is able to. For tens of thousands of Australians, July the 1st, 2013 represents far more than a new financial year. The Mabo moment of the disability sector and that is worth celebrating. In Geelong, Adelaide, Newcastle and Devonport, disability care was launched. 26,000 people in these areas will now have access to tailored care for life. That's a really interesting part of the whole story. The Productivity Commission, being largely comprised of very rational and experienced economists and social policy people, said do a trial in each state that has a slice of all of the people who would be using services. So young people through to people up to 65, a range of impairment categories. That didn't happen because the Gillard government was keen to cement the new model because they were facing electoral defeat. And so they went and established quite varying intergovernmental agreements with each of the state governments around the country. And so there was a shift from the the pure research design that had been put up by the Productivity Commission to something that was going to meet the political goals of both those state governments and the federal government. And so in South Australia, the rollout happened with children because the state government here was very interested in securing a better future for children with disability and it was consistent with some other policy directions they were pursuing. In New South Wales, they went for a region And then there were various categories of people around the country. So I was involved in that evaluation of the trial and it was a very intricate kind of process and it produced some good findings, but it didn't have the capacity to build the baseline that the Productivity Commission had envisaged as a result of that trial, that there would be a baseline, we'd have a fairly good idea about the demands might be put on the system the sorts of needs that people required assistance with and what the cost might be across their lifetime. I think that by the time we went to full launch, some of those rudiments of the insurance model were somewhat compromised and I think that the agency has struggled to deal with that. So what the trials, I think, really showed was, yes, providing people more services, how we do planning can lead to much better outcomes for people. There was clearly issues, I think, though, around was there enough attention paid to that initial market design to ensure it was fit for purpose? Potentially not, I don't think. And it's one of those things that isn't necessarily catastrophic, like it doesn't mean the whole thing falls over. It just means overall you're going to end up paying more for something that's probably lower quality than you would with a different market design. And I guess my point on this is it's a huge investment that we're making as a country and you really want to make sure the market design is such that you're maximising 
the outcomes in terms of better outcomes for people with a disability and ensuring that costs aren't just allowed to run away without it necessarily leading to those better outcomes for people with a disability. The national rollout of the NDIS began in 2018 and right from the beginning it was clear there were going to be problems for at least part of the disability community. In terms of accessibility, to prove that you're eligible for the NDIS, often this involves going and getting a number of different reports from medical professionals and other sorts of clinicians to demonstrate that you have a permanent and significant disability. Now, for some people in some areas, that might be easy. They may have good access to regular professionals who they use, or maybe they can circumvent some of the waiting that you might have in the public system by going through the private system to do some of that. My name is Helen Dickinson. I'm a professor of public service research at UNSW Canberra. Once you enter onto the scheme, you then go through a planning process. You meet with a planner to identify the types of outcomes and activities that you want to do in terms of your life and the sorts of services and supports that you might need to do some of that. For some people, again, that planning process can go really well. You might get somebody who's really skilled, who engages with you and listens to you and comes up with a great plan. But for other people, that isn't so easy. For people who come from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, people who come from Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander communities, perhaps some people who don't have good kind of supports around them or have aspects of cognitive impairment, that might be more difficult. It's, it's also a big cultural shift as well. For some people who've been in disability services for years, services before were very inflexible and you were often told what you should have rather than being asked for your input into that. And so all of a sudden being asked what you want in terms of your life and the choices that you might want to make can sometimes be a bit of a difficult process to go through. So we've seen people go on a bit of a cultural change process around that. Once you get a plan, then there's another set of processes that are put in place, which are around finding providers who might be able to deliver services for you. And that can be more difficult than it sounds sometimes. In some areas, there's a real lack of providers, particularly if you're in regional or rural areas, there might not be a lot of providers in those areas. But also in urban areas, in metropolitan areas, we also see that there isn't quite enough care staff in terms of the workforce yet and so we see some long waiting lists for some services there aren't the sorts of services available that people want to be in place so it's a really complex scheme and there's various different points at which different challenges might arise. The NDIS is administered by the NDIA or National Disability Insurance Agency it's the NDIA that does a person's individualised assessment and determines the NDIS plan and their funding package. Once again, we have a variable picture. The people who are like me, who are used to voicing their expectations and dealing with bureaucracies and navigating this stuff, have a much easier path than people who have other obstacles related to their impairment or where they are in the service system or that they may not have the supports of family members who will be able to navigate that space for them. Also where people's needs are complex. And so 
a fairly straightforward impairment profile where someone's able to articulate what they need. It's not a massive demand on the system. Those people have a much easier journey through it than people who have complex needs, a range of impairments. They come with a history of trauma and nervousness about engaging with these sorts of systems. They're foxed by forms and having to answer questions and all those sorts of things. And so the NDIA rapidly developed into a bureaucracy with a fairly transactional interface. So in in lots of ways, the NDIA became like a sort of gatekeeper, really. Definitely. And we can see that happening increasingly as the NDIA board and the government generally becomes concerned about cost blowouts. This scheme had an artificial staff cap. We have a call centre made up of labour hire people, perfectly fine people, but when they get rung up, they can't even access or talk directly to the participant's file because you've got labour hire and not direct employees. The National Disability Insurance Agency was originally designed to have 11,000 staff, but back in 2015, under the Abbott government, they put a cap on the NDIA staff at 4,000. The implication of that is that they ended up having to use a lot of external labour hires or kind of contractors to do some of that work. So over the last nine years, we've gone from having zero people on the NDIS to now over 535,000 participants, many of whom have their plans reviewed every year. So that's quite a lot of activity to do. So what that means is that other people have been used as kind of proxy planners to do some of that work. Is there a sense that all the people working either within the NDIA or people they might contract this work out to, that they actually had a sort of clear understanding of disability issues and how they should work with participants going through this cultural and economic change? With such a huge kind of workforce, as you'd imagine, it's relatively kind of patchy in terms of some of that. We've heard some horror stories from NDIS participants that we've spoken to who have got to plan review and have been asked things like, do you still have your amputation? Or when did you first start to know that you had Down syndrome, which is obviously a, a genetic condition? So it's pretty clear that not all of the people working in the system have a really good understanding of disabilities or disability issues. But hopefully that will will grow over time. But certainly within the early stages, there were some challenges around that. And as I say, the NDIS has been really highly reliant on getting participants to get reports from medical professionals and other clinicians to support their cases around particular things. And so that means that often participants feel like they're not trusted, they're not the expert in their own disability, despite having, you know, often lived with that for many years. I was talking to somebody the other day who was requesting a piece of equipment that would be $400, and they'd been told that they had to go and get reports from physiotherapists therapists and occupational therapists to demonstrate that they needed this piece of equipment and the reports cost $600. So the end result of that process is the person feels like they're not being believed, they're not being trusted around their own disability and support needs, and the whole process cost, you know, $1,000 and 600 of that was in professional reports. 
When they originally estimated the cost, they thought it would cover around 410,000 Australians and would cost about $13.6 billion at maturity. Now, by 2017, they'd updated their figures significantly. So they then estimated around 475,000 Australians would receive individualised supports and that would cost about $22 billion a year. So much more expensive than those initial estimates. Now what we find is there's actually around 530,000 people currently receiving support under the scheme and it's going to cost this year around $24 billion, and that's going to keep increasing by around 14% a year and hit around $50 billion or 2% of our gross domestic product or our economy by the end of the decade. So it has really expanded. And look, there's a lot of reasons for that. I think part of the research that I did as part of my PhD looked at how people assess their needs, both before and after the National Disability Insurance Scheme was introduced and announced. And what that saw was people increased their perception of need. So when there's no service, I guess, to be offered and nothing that can help you, you might not perceive a need. But once there is a support available, your perception of your need may well change. And I think that's part of the story in terms of that demand side. The government is encouraging a conversation about the cost of the National Disability Insurance Scheme. There is some abuse of the system, there is some waste that can be dealt with. The scheme growing at about 14% annually and expected to hit almost $100 billion a year within a decade, which at 2.5% of GDP would be more than the defence budget. There are a number of areas where money is being spent in ways that probably don't make sense and are not going into direct services and supports for individuals. So we know that there's some fraud in the system. We don't know how much that is, but we've seen figures banded around at potentially around $6 billion a year. Some of the rules of the game in the NDIS as well also might need looking at. So for each different service activity, the NDIS sets out a maximum price that can be charged for that. And what we've found and what's been reported by many people with disability elsewhere is that rather than taking that as a maximum price that should be charged, people are taking that as the price that they should charge for activities. Cleaning, for example, the maximum amount per hour for that in a metropolitan area is about $50 an hour, whereas if you look at the standard rate for a cleaner's wage in many kind of urban areas, it's probably more like about $23 an hour. And so we see people who go to service providers who get quoted for something, whether that's a physiotherapist or cleaner or an occupational therapist, and then they turn up for that service and they find out that the person is on the NDIS and all of a sudden the price increases. And so we certainly need to look at some things around pricing in the scheme and what's been asked for different services. But there's another big place that a lot of money has been wasted in recent years, which is around appeals processes. So once you get your plan from the NDIS, if you're not happy with that, you can go through an internal review process. If that doesn't give you any joy, you have the option to appeal to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. And since 2016, we've seen appeals to that committee have been raised by more than 700%. But it's also really expensive because the NDIA relies on external legal counsel to represent it. The founder of Perth-based disability provider Forward Focused Group is accused of a quarter of a million dollar fraud of the NDIS. 
Vida Reed's company was suspended from the NDIS three weeks ago. The NDIS Quality and Safeguards Commission finding failure to act with integrity, honesty and transparency, threats, bullying and harassment of NDIS participants, as well as the submission of false claims for payment to the NDIS. Oh, a huge number of new and smaller players coming in. There's over 9,000 providers providing disability services. So, yes, there has certainly been a massive expansion. And there is a question mark about, well, what's the quality? What are the motivations? And I don't think it's necessarily a thing to say that for-profit is bad, but you do want to make sure people have the expertise and experience in this sector to be providing those high-quality services as well. I think that the federal government should be able to explore its possibilities around market regulation and the way in which those services establish their eligibility to operate in the space. I think that that has been really underdeveloped. And so I'm hoping that in this period of review and rebuild that we will see many more expectations placed on people who step into this space and say that they are going to provide services and that they need to really drive up quality in that way. There aren't clear quality indicators. So if you're trying to choose a provider, it's not necessarily clear who are the high or low quality providers. You know, that that's not market information that's available. And that is a big problem. And it's a big problem in aged care when, again, it, it's not necessarily, you might know whether, you know, providers breach national guidelines, but you're not necessarily driving the market towards the highest quality provider. And we haven't done enough work, I don't think, across all our quasi-markets to develop those strong indicators of quality that do two things that are important. One is it actually rewards high-quality providers and gives them a reward for doing well and doing better, and it also drives some of that marginal activity that can drive overall system performance. And so the NDIS, and again, it's complicated. When you've got over 9,000 providers, how do you develop consistent, easily understood and reliable quality indicators. They haven't yet done that. And the second reason for that, and it's quite theoretical, is if you can make quality the main driver, then you can actually get a more efficient, cost-effective scheme. Those quality indicators are really, really critical. So will the current review of the NDIS lead to significant change? I think that Minister Shorten understands the deep history of this. He's got a very good connection to the disability movement generally. He's a person who is not afraid of asking difficult questions and I think that that is a big change. And he's also reached out to people who've got expertise in social policy development as well as their own lived experience of disability I do think that there is the bigger question about how this fits economically and, and I've always thought that we really need people who are not necessarily just market-driven economists thinking about this. And so I think that this review could very much help the participant pathway so that people have a better experience of navigating their way through the NDIS, and I think that is a really important part in terms of developing trust and capacity within the system. I am not sure the review will address the issues around the cost blowouts and the cost shifting from mainstream systems and the 
probable underestimation of demand that was built into the system right at the very beginning. I think these are really big taxing kinds of questions and they require a level of specialised expertise that I don't have in order to fix them. But my my own particular area of interest is around the safeguarding stuff and I think that there is much more that can be done with that. I speak to people on a day-to-day basis who say that the NDIS has been absolutely transformational for them. And if we look internationally and compare it to other disability support schemes across the world, it's absolutely world-leading. Getting this right will be a huge thing that Australia can do to show to the world that it's possible to do this sort of work and do it really well. Professor Helen Dickinson from UNSW Canberra. Today's other guests, Associate Professor Lorna Hallahan from Flinders University and Dr Angela Jackson from Impact Economics and Policy. The sound engineer is Russell Stapleton. I'm Annabelle Quince and this is Rear Vision. Hey, history lovers. If you enjoy a deep dive into the past, then join me, Kirsty Melville, for the History Listen. Every week, our episodes allow you to step into a time machine and immerse yourself in a story from the past in full technicolour detail. Hear from the people who were there and from those who've dug down into the archives. We bring the past to life. So catch us for the History Listen on the ABC Listen app.